Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 97, January 23rd to January 29th, 1863. Last week, we had the famous Mud March, which closes out the Fredericksburg campaign. We also talked about the pay that soldiers received, including the difficulties of pay as well as frequency. This week, we have an event out on the frontier, but before we get into that, we need to close the book on Ambrose Burnside and we need to introduce Joe Hooker as the commander of the Army of the Potomac. Before we get into the replacement of Burnside, though, we do want to just briefly mention, uh, we talked about the last couple episodes, there is an extra Patreon episode, and that is a picture slideshow of Prospect Hill and the Slaughter Pen Farm area of the Fredericksburg Battlefield. As I mentioned before, I thought it went really well with gods and generals and pretty close to what we're talking about here in this month because we're still wrapping up Fredericksburg and we're still talking about Ambrose Burnside here. So if that sounds like something that would interest you as well as our other content, memoir reviews, uh, movie reviews that we've done in the past, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description. And of course, your continued support for the show is greatly appreciated. So last week, we had the final act in the story that was the command of Ambrose Burnside in the Mud March. Burnside would go to Washington and meet with Lincoln for the last time as the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac. Again, he would offer his resignation not only of the Army but also of his commission, seeking to return to civilian life if the president wished. Lincoln would want to confer with his advisors. Burnside apparently pointing out that if that happened, he would not accept his resignation. It's definitely a sharp contrast from sort of this, you know, you're fine, everything's fine, just go back and do your job kind of mentality, like, yeah, I gotta think about it now, you know? Uh, So it is a little bit different that we see here. But the president did accept the resignation and replaced Burnside with Joseph Hooker. Rather than civilian life, Burnside would be given a furlough, something he definitely needed, especially as mentioned, because of his mental state following Fredericksburg. He is going to continue to be in our story through the end of the war. So just sit tight on continued updates from Ambrose Burnside. It should be noted that Hooker was not trusted by the president, but he seemed to be the best available option. His battlefield record was a good one, an aggressive, albeit ambitious leader, was seemingly necessary for the Army of the Potomac. Hooker, for his part, would be inheriting an army that was low in morale and riddled with desertion, so this was not going to be an easy task. Soldiers were nonplussed at the appointment. Some were definitely glad to see Burnside go, though. Burnside does need to have the book properly closed on his tenure in Army Command. People often refer to him as one of the worst commanders of the Army, but let's remember Fredericksburg could have turned out fairly differently. Even the advance to this base of operations could have maybe been different 
in its execution. Would Burnside have befallen the same fate at the North Anna? Maybe. I think there are things we need to point out, though. Burnside is the most reluctant commander I have read about. He is constantly saying he is not the right guy for the job and trying to resign. It's like this. I'm not a doctor, so if I was somehow appointed to be one, but was a normal doctor and kept saying, hey, I don't know how to do brain surgery, I'm a pediatrician, and the medical board just keeps saying, that's nice, go ahead and take a look at this guy's brain, and by the way, if he doesn't go well, our hospital is probably going to cease to exist. Extreme example, yeah, and maybe not quite that accurate, but still similar in my book. Self-confidence issues aside, Burnside does perform decently enough. It's easy to contrast him to the overcautious McClellan. McClellan would not have attacked at Fredericksburg. I firmly believe that. He would not have arrived to the point where Franklin's attack might have worked. So at least there's that. Burnside does suffer from being apolitical. He has no support, which also makes him attractive to the president on the flip side. But he also does not have support, which is a negative. There's also no support amongst his general officers. Franklin is a crony of McClellan. Hooker we have already talked about. Sumner is already a tough guy to work with, but at least of the old soldier mentality. There's going to be a common theme amongst these officers. It's kind of like coaching trees almost, where there's a lot of guys who are firmly in the McClellan camp, some people who are not, some who are just trying to do their job, and it does kind of get complicated. The other thing that I wanted to point out, though, that we're actually going to see here later in 1863 is that when Meade gets the nod to become commander of the Army of the Potomac, he's going to have support from the other generals. They're going to say, Meade's the guy you want. I could follow Meade. Doesn't really seem like Burnside gets that, right? It's more, you know, this is this is kind of the next guy up. And if you don't take this, then Hooker is going to be in charge. And that's never a good reason, I don't think, just to deny Hooker a victory, right? To become the commander of the Army of the Potomac. We saw Rosecrans make at least some changes to his subordinate officers. Burnside really does not, so he's at a disadvantage there. Overall, I will allow you to make your own conclusion with Burnside. Unlike McClellan, he is going to have some more command opportunities, so perhaps we can view those and then make our judgment holistically. He was only in command for some 80 days, so this probably hampers our ability to really get a good picture. It seems to me, at least in this medium, like he came and went very quickly. A quick blurb to introduce Joe Hooker to Army Command. Hooker on paper is going to look like a good option for command in the East. He has been a veteran since Williamsburg, performing well in the Seven Days. During the Antietam campaign, he gets the nod for wing command. There are many who hold the opinion that if he was not wounded, there could have been a real breakthrough around Dunkard Church, and Lee's army could have been defeated before retreating back into Virginia. Hooker will also have the political backing that would shift the war into the political sphere. Pointed out, I think in a previous episode though, that Hooker 
is going to sort of be a free agent when it comes to politics. So he, he was a Democrat, and uh, then he decides he's going to be a Republican. Salmon Chase, in particular, is going to be his political patron. He's going to start to reorganize and plan a strike at Lilo. Way back in 1861, Hooker had shown up at the White House, seeking to be a general following the disaster at First Bull Run. He told President Lincoln that he could do a better job than those currently leading the troops. In early 1863, he was going to get the opportunity to prove it. He will start with the improved conditions of his troops. Caring for his men was something that had already stuck with his reputation. That ship had sailed for Burnside in his ineffectual attacks as they crashed against Murray's Heights. As we mentioned, Hooker would provide his men bread instead of hardtack. This sentiment is captured in this quote from the New York Times. We're glad to hear of the success of the system inaugurated by General Hooker for supplying his army regularly with fresh bread. If we may judge of the style of ovens used by the pictures of them giving in the illustrated papers, they are simple and well contrived and ought to turn out a good loaf or biscuit. There are professional bakers enough in every brigade of the army to work the matter, as well as the dough properly. As each soldier is entitled to a pound loaf every other day, we suppose between 60 and 70,000 loaves will be consumed per diem by the infantry, artillery, and horse marines under command of General Joe Hooker. So bread it is with the Union men, as they are able to settle into winter quarters. Certainly, this would start to improve morale. I do want to just kind of also wedge in here uh, a little blurb about Jonathan Letterman. We talked about Letterman when we mentioned uh, some medical practices. He developed a triage system um, that was very effective, right? That triage system of caring for the wounded on the battlefield is uh, still in its concept used today. And he also is going to play a big part in, while the Army of the Potomac starts to retool itself, he's going to play a big part in making sure that the soldiers are going to be rested, exercised, and given the proper nutrition. And we have some letters that are actually going to be after Hooker's tenure, but it gives you an idea. These are the kinds of things that he was trying to get into place while Fighting Joe is going to be the commander. And this is from Letterman. The diseases prevailing in our own army are generally of a mild type and are not increasing. Their chief causes are, in my opinion, the one of proper food, and that improperly prepared. Exposure to the malaria of swamps and the inclemencies of the weather, excessive fatigue and one of natural rest, combined with great excitement of several days' duration, and the exhaustion consequent thereon. I would recommend to remedy these evils that food with an abundance of fresh vegetables, shelter, rest, with a moderate amount of exercise, be given all the troops, and general and personal police be enforced. To accomplish this, I would suggest that an abundant supply of fresh onions and potatoes be used by the troops daily, for a fortnight, and thereafter at least twice a week, cost what they may. That the desiccated vegetables, dried apples or peaches, and pickles be used thrice a week, that a supply of fresh bread by floating ovens or other methods be distributed at least three times a week, that the food be prepared by companies and not squads, 
and that there be two men detailed from each company as permanent cooks to be governed in making the soups and cooking by the enclosed directions. That wells be dug as deep as the water will permit. That the troops be provided with tents or other shelter to protect them from the sun and rain, which shall be raised daily and struck once a week and placed upon new ground. The tents d'abri also to be placed over new ground once a week. That the men be required to cut pine tops, spread them thickly in their tents and not sleep on the ground. The camps be formed not in the woods but a short distance from them where a free circulation of pure air can be procured and where the ground has been exposed to the sun and air such an extent as to vitiate the noxious exhalations from damp ground saturated with the emanations from the human body and from the decaying vegetation. Sleep during the day will not compensate for the loss of it at night and that not more than two drills per day be had one in the morning from 6.15 to 7, and one in the evening from 6.30 to 7.15. Then the men be allowed to sleep until sunrise, and that they have their breakfast as soon as they rise. This, with the labor required for policing, will be sufficient during the present season. So we have a lot of things that are going to make sense to us, right? Like, get a lot of rest, and do a little bit of exercise, and make sure that you're eating a balanced diet. Um, these kind of things that sort of are no-brainers for us are being implemented by Letterman here. It's also interesting how he wants to make sure that the camps are in the right spot. So if you start to really care for the well-being and the health of the troops and make sure they're healthy and good to go, they're going to be increased in their fighting capacity. And this is something that Hooker is definitely going to buy into. He's also going to make sure they get paid, stop the desertions, and then He's going to try to do something that's going to be a little bit different than the other army commanders have done before, and that's he's not going to try a frontal assault like Burnside. So he's not just going to do the same mistake that his predecessor had done. So if you add all these things together, I would say, as our story unfolds here, we're not going to come to that conclusion today, but I would say that you're going to be, like me, a little bit surprised by Joe Hooker, who gets a bad rap sometimes I feel but you're going to be able to make your own assessment as we move forward on January 29th we have the Battle of Bear River also referred to as the Bear River Massacre taking place in modern-day Idaho this would pit California volunteers attacking an encampment of Shoshone which included many women and children now, if the Shoshone tribe sounds familiar, it probably should. Sacagawea, who would guide the Corps of Discovery, aka Lewis and Clark, was a Shoshone. She had been captured in a raid and sold to a French trapper. Fortunately for Lewis and Clark, she had run into them and served as a guide. Now, the Shoshone tribe had once covered a large territory which included parts of California, Idaho, and Wyoming. One day, I kind of want to do some extra content on the core of Discovery, but for today, just know this tribe has had conflict with white settlers for some time when we finally get to 1860. Most notably, they would come into contact with Mormon settlers. The Cache Valley, which was the site of the conflict, was even considered as a spot for establishing the Mormon territorial seat. As we may have discussed during the Mormon War, the general policy established by Brigham Young was to be friendly with their native neighbors. 
It is a little hard to be friendly with people who are coming in and using your resources and taking your land, though. Sporadic raiding and violence would break out between settlers and the Shoshone, which included action by Chief Bear Hunter, who would engage forces at a place called Providence Valley before being captured. With the Confederates seceding, there would be a need for more of a military presence to keep order, which prompted the moving of regiments from California. Leading the California Volunteers was Colonel Patrick Connor. Connor, as the name would apply, was originally from Ireland, but immigrated to America. Winding up in Texas, he would serve as a volunteer in the Mexican-American War. At the outbreak of the conflict, he would be placed at the helm of the 3rd California Volunteers, and moved into the Utah Territory. Now, if you remember, there had been a column of Californians who had moved into Arizona and New Mexico following the invasion of the Texas Brigade. Other volunteer units were seen as being necessary for the security of the territories. Not only was there a fear of native uprisings, such as been the case in Minnesota, but there was also a fear of Confederate influence to the tribes and the area in general. Talked about how the federal government is sort of going to have this little side eye at the Mormons and kind of be like, hey, you're not going to not going to throw your lot into these guys, right? Uh, so they're always going to be wary of that. There had been an alliance with the tribes in the Oklahoma Territory, even though these were more affiliated with the South than those on the frontier. So if these individuals are sort of splitting up and breaking and there is a good contingent that does fight for the Confederacy, then that could happen in other places. So it's something that the Union Army is going to want to avoid. It was not long ago that the Utah War had seen the federal government at odds with the Church of Latter-day Saints in this region. If any of these fears were to be realized, then it would mean that there would be a potential the western states would be cut off from the rest of the country. This, of course, would not be good for the Union, and potentially an area for opportunity for the rebels. The Confederates being able to seize gold fields and open up new ports to receive foreign aid is something that Lincoln is going to have in his nightmares. Of course, this had been the goal of Sibley's invasion of New Mexico, if you remember. Connor and his men had already been dealing with quelling the Shoshone by the time 1863 rolled around. There were even warrants for the arrest of some of the natives for the murder of a miner in the area. Setting out in January of 1863, Connor would have under him some 300 men, cavalry and infantry, mounting a punitive expedition. He would mask the use of his cavalry by having them ride at night, while the infantry marched during the day. Still, the gun was hard, and by the time the California volunteers approached the Shoshone camp, many of them had frostbite. The Shoshone were not entirely ignorant of soldiers marching on their camp at Bear River. There were obstacles and breastworks made to hinder the enemy attacks. From recently found manuscripts, we have a first-hand account of the attack from a Sergeant Beach. When they had arrived at the position they occupy on the drawing, Major McGeary gave the commands to dismount and prepare to fight on foot, which was instantly obeyed. Lieutenant Chase and Captain Price then gave the command forward to their respective companies, after which no officer was heeded or needed. 
The boys were fighting Indians and intended to whip them. It was a free fight, every man on his own hook. Companies H and A came up in about three minutes and pitched in a like manner. Cavalry horses were sent back to bring the infantry across the river as soon as they arrived. When across, they took a double quick until they arrived at the place they occupy on the drawing. They pitched in California style, every man for himself, and the devil for the Indians. The colonel's voice was occasionally heard encouraging the men, telling them to take good aim and save their ammunition. Majors McGeary and Gallagher were also allowed in their encouragement to the men. The Indians were soon routed from the head of the ravine and apparently anticipated a general stampede, but were frustrated in their attempt. Major McGeary sent a detachment of mounted cavalry down the river and cut off the retreat in that direction. Seeing that death was their doom, they made a desperate stand in the lower end of the ravine, where it appeared like rushing on to death to approach them, but the victory was not yet won. With a deafening yell, the infuriated volunteers with one impulse made a rush down the steep banks into their very midst, when the work of death commenced in real earnest. Midst the roar of guns and sharp report of pistols could be heard the cries for quarters, but there was no quarters that day. Some jumped into the river and were shot attempting to cross. Some mounted their ponies and attempted to run the gauntlet in different directions, but were shot on the wing, while others ran down the river to a small island in a thicket of willows below where they found a very unwelcome reception by a few of the boys who were awaiting the approach of stragglers. It was hardly daylight when the fight commenced. In freezing cold, the valley was covered with snow, one foot deep, which made it very uncomfortable to the wounded who had to lay until the fight was over. The fight lasted four hours and appeared more like a frolic than a fight, the wounded cracking jokes, with the frozen, some frozen so bad that they could not load their guns, use them as clubs. No distinction was made between officers and privates, each fought where he had thought he was most needed. The report is current that there was 300 of the volunteers engaged, and that is incorrect one-fourth of the cavalry present had to hold horses. Part of the infantry were on guard with the wagons, while others were left behind, some sick with frozen hands and feet. Only 300 started on the expedition. So there is a lot to unpack there, and we're going to kind of talk about it here, right? But it's very kind of disorganized, it sounds like. Very, um, the officers are jumping in to the fighting they're getting it the same kind of combat as their private soldiers. So it sounds like there's not a whole lot of control here, which could add into these casualty figures that we're going to talk about here in a minute. The conditions also are very interesting. It's in snow and talks about how a lot of the wounded are being frozen, right? And there's already men who are not going to be participating in the fight because of these harsher conditions. So that's also something that is fairly striking. Fourteen of the soldiers were killed, with an additional 49 wounded. Most of the casualties were in the initial assault, and on the works before flanking movements were employed. The Shoshone were at a major disadvantage in terms of firearms compared to the well-armed California volunteers. This added to the breakthrough and subsequent slaughter. Bear Hunter, who was the subject of a previous arrest, was reportedly killed 
not wishing to surrender. There are many accounts of exactly how many of the Shoshone were killed, but most of the estimates I have seen are in the area of 300, which of course unfortunately included many women and children. Bear River would thus become the largest massacre of natives on the frontier, outnumbering Sand Creek and Wounded Knee. Some of the Shoshone did survive, eventually settling on the Wind River Reservation. Connor and the California Volunteers would go on to participate in further action against tribes in the West. It's kind of sad when you're researching this kind of thing, right? You don't hear about Bear River that often. Wounded Knee and Sand Creek are two you know, more famous events that are both also unfortunate in that they are considered to be massacres against Native peoples. You don't hear about Bear River, though, and that is striking when you're doing this kind of research where you find out about these things. And, and hopefully I was able to bring this to light and, and teach some of you listening out there about this, something that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise heard. So it is good to kind of talk about these things. We need to backtrack just a little bit to close out the episode and talk about Jefferson Davis giving his State of the Confederacy address. Now you may realize this is a little play on words, because they left the Union, so you probably would not be able to have a State of the Union address. There's really not a whole lot to go over with this one. It's a direct response to the Emancipation Proclamation, and obviously it is not a positive critique of that movement. Essentially, Davis is going to cite the Constitution and how Lincoln does not have the authority to emancipate slaves currently in Southern Territory. His counter is that the slaves will retain their slave status, which is not surprising. Obviously, it is interesting that although a separate country in the eyes of the Confederacy, they are still going to make their arguments based off the U.S. Constitution. Let's put a pause to things there. This week, we said a see you later to Burnside, who's going to get put on the bench for a little while. Fighting Joe is ready to take control. We had the massacre at Bear River in modern-day Idaho as well, which is an unfortunate event to happen during the war. Next week, we are going to head back over to Charleston for some naval action. We will also head back to our old stomping ground of Fort Donaldson for the Battle of Dover and the breaking of forest from command under Joe Wheeler. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. I also would like to mention that with the website, um, I made sure it was available on the Wix app. And I'm not sure if that's going to be a better mobile uh, medium. Um, I think the website works in the way it's constructed um, without having to download this app, but... Um, maybe it would be easier with the Wix app, and that's going to be on the website. So if you want to check that out, um, there's a way to sign up on there. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>